When it was announced on April 19, 1997, that serial killer Archibald Mad Dog Beatty McCafferty was to be released from prison on parole after serving 23 years in some of Australia's toughest jails, it sent a shockwave of outrage through the community. McCafferty's crimes were immeasurable. To the friends and families of his victims, there was no doubt that he deserved to die behind bars, which was the recommendation by court-appointed psychiatrists at his trial. But then the citizens breathed a sigh of relief when a further press release announced that McCafferty was to be deported back to his place of birth, Scotland. Although Archie had lived in Australia most of his life, it appeared as though he'd never taken the time to become an Australian citizen. Much to the disgust of Scottish authorities, Australia's prison system had found a loophole to rid itself of one of the most vicious and troublesome killers in its history. But even back in his native Scotland, Archie couldn't stay out of trouble, and it wasn't long before he was back in the courts for breaking the law. When Archibald Beatty McCafferty was 10, his parents, Archie and Clementine, migrated to Australia from Scotland to leave behind their bleak working-class existence and start a new life with hope. The McCafferty's moved first to Melbourne and then to Bass Hill and Sydney's blue-collar western suburbs. Archie was in trouble with the police from the outset, and by the time he was 12, he was placed in an institution for stealing. He already had a long record. By the time he was 18, Archie had been in institutions five times and had been classified as an incorrigible juvenile delinquent. One detective described him as the toughest kid I ever met. At 24, he'd been in and out of jail many times and had a record of 35 convictions that included break, enter, and steal, stealing cars, larceny, assault, vagrancy, and receiving stolen goods. However, Archie McCafferty was not considered a violent criminal. His assault charges arose from fistfights with the police, but none of his other crimes involved violence. Yet, Archie was obsessed with ferocity. He loved movies that overdosed on aggression and brutality. His favorites were Clockwork Orange and The Godfather. He saw them many times over, and his favorite scene from The Godfather was the one in which Sonny Corleone was riddled with bullets at the toll gates. Though at this stage of his life, Archie was not violent toward other people, he told a psychiatrist that he enjoyed strangling chickens, dogs, and cats to see what it was like. When Archie fell in love with and married Janice Reddington in April 1972, his family prayed that he would at last settle down. The couple had met at a hotel where Janice worked part-time as a switchboard operator. The marriage was only six weeks old when Janice caught her husband in bed with another woman. She wasn't impressed, but Archie's response was so violent it prompted his first visit to a psychiatric hospital. After discharging himself, Archie threw away his sedatives started drinking heavily, and took out all of his aggression on his wife. Although Janice was pregnant, Archie would repeatedly bash her when he was drunk, which was most nights. He would press his thumbs against her windpipe and only let go as she was about to lapse into unconsciousness. One night when he nearly killed Janice, Archie booked himself back into the hospital and told psychiatrists that he wanted to kill his wife and her family. He said he wanted to get the evil thoughts out of his head but discharged himself a few days later. There was nothing that the doctors could do to keep him there. The visits to psychiatric hospitals did nothing to change Archie's ways. He went straight back on the drink when he discharged himself, and his drug intake increased. So did his fits of uncontrollable violence. He got a job on a garbage truck, 
and this seemed to pacify him for a short time during the days. But at night, he was getting worse. Archie's mother claimed that the birth of his son, Craig Archibald, on February 4, 1973, turned Archie into a different person. Janice McCafferty did not agree. She said that he was still drinking heavily and taking all sorts of drugs. She was terrified to take the baby in the car for fear that Archie would have an accident and kill them all. Little Craig lived only six weeks. At 3 a.m. on the morning of Saturday, March 17, 1973, Janice took the baby to bed with them to feed him. She dozed off and woke at 9 a.m. She told the inquest into the baby's death, I felt something underneath me in the bed. I jumped straight out of bed and I saw the baby's face and realized something was terribly wrong. There was blood on his face and on my nightie. My brow was still undone. I must have rolled over to my left and rolled onto my baby. At the inquest, held on August 24, 1973, the coroner, Mr. John Dunn, said that the child had died accidentally when his mother went to sleep on top of him while breastfeeding. He completely exonerated Janice McCafferty and said, I must say, in the interests of the welfare of the young mother, I cannot find anything to be critical of her for what happened. Archie McCafferty did not agree. He'd left Janice a week after the tragedy, and although he did not attend the inquest into his son's death, he sent a scathing letter to the coroner, accusing Janice of murdering their son. Was the death of his son all that Archie McCafferty needed to tip him over the edge? It was a question on which psychiatrists would sharply disagree. Certainly, the horror of his son's death played constantly on Archie's already troubled mind. But was it the match that had lit the fuse to the keg of dynamite that was about to explode? The first eruption occurred a week after Craig's death. The McCafferty's had a few friends over for drinks after the funeral, and when most of them had gone, Archie started playing a record called Nobody's Child in Remembrance of His Dead Son. An argument started, and Janice McCafferty fled. Archie caught up with her hours later in Blacktown, where he accused her of killing his son. When Archie took to her with a picket fence, Janice's brother and another man stepped in and gave him a hiding. The following day, he turned up at his parents' house at Bass Hill. Badly bruised and covered in blood, he pleaded with his mother for help. She despaired at her confused son's plight and begged him to readmit himself to the hospital. That day, a family friend drove Archie to the Parramatta Psychiatric Center, where he booked himself in for treatment. This was his third self-admission in nine months, the one that prompted hospital staff to ring the police when he checked himself out a few days later. Archie's passion was getting tattoos. Visiting the tattooist was like seeing his therapist. The tattooist knew all of Archie's innermost thoughts. Archie confided in him, sought his advice, and admired his opinions. As a result of the long hours Archie had spent having pictures put on his body, there wasn't much room left. He was covered in more than 200 of them. When police had to photograph all of Archie's identifying marks, they used many rolls of film. There were even stars tattooed on his earlobes. Like many of the others on his body, they were done with Indian ink and sewing needles while filling in the long hours in prison. Archie hated these Nick or prison tattoos, and whenever he was out of prison, he got them covered with proper ones. His body's a walking advertisement of his hatred of the police. One tattoo spread across his shoulders and back says, The man who puts another man under lock and key is not born of woman's womb. Another says, 
kill and hate cops. Archie has drawings of two bulldogs on his chest and two sharks on each shoulder. There are eyes tattooed on each of his buttocks, and the bottom half of his body is covered in drawings depicting love and sex. Archie had saved space on his chest for a special tattoo, and until his son was killed, he didn't know what that tattoo would be. The day he discharged himself from the Parramatta Psychiatric Center, he went to the tattooist and had a memorial to his son etched on that special spot on his chest. It's a cross-shaped tombstone embedded in a blood-red rose. It's inscribed, In Memory of Craig. Several weeks later, Archie paid another visit to his tattooist for another special tattoo. This time, he would have his favorite number, seven, tattooed on the web between his thumb and forefinger. It was one of the few places left on Archie's body that was not already covered with ink. He had the number tattooed next to the head of a snarling panther. Archie chose that number for two reasons. He decided that seven people must die to avenge his son's death. Plus, it was his lucky number. Archie did everything in sevens. Curiously, the number seven would recur during McCafferty's rampage of murder. Janice McCafferty had not seen her husband in the five months since she visited him at the psychiatric center the day after he had tried to kill her. But on August 23, 1973, the night before the inquest into little Craig's death, two bricks with notes wrapped around them were tossed through the window of her home in Blacktown. The first note read, You and the rest of your family can go and get fucked because anyone who has anything to do with me is going to die of a bad death. You know who this letter is from. So take warning because Bill is the next cab off the rank. Then you go one by one. It was signed, You Know Who. Bill was Bill Rian, Janice McCafferty's mother's boyfriend. The second note read, The only thing in my mind is to kill you, your mother, and Bill Rian. This is not a bluff because I'm that dirty on all of you for the death of my son. But I can't let it go at that. I have a matter of a few guns, so I'm going to use them on you all for satisfaction. Beware. The following night, August 24th, the killing started. McCafferty had chosen the day carefully. It was the first day of the inquest into the death of his son. A week earlier, Archie McCafferty had formed a gang out of an odd assortment of teenagers along with Carol Ellen Howes, a 26-year-old woman he was living with. Archie met Howes and 16-year-old Julianne Todd when he was a patient at the Parramatta Psychiatric Center. Carol Howes was the mother of three children aged four to seven and was separated from her husband. In the previous two years, Carol had made three attempts on her life by taking large doses of sleeping tablets. Carol Howes told Archie that she intended to try to kill herself again and McCafferty talked her out of it. This formed a bond between the pair and before long, they'd moved into a flat in the inner western suburb of Earlwood. The teenager, Julie Todd, had met them both at the center while she was being treated for mental disorders. McCafferty took her in with them when she had nowhere else to go. McCafferty was living with Howes and Todd at the time of the murders. They were joined by Michael John Mick Meredith and Richard William Dick Whittington, two 17-year-olds McCafferty had met at a Bankstown tattooist's a few days earlier. Mick and Dick had a couple of rifles. The sixth member of the gang was 17-year-old Donald Richard Rick Webster, who McCafferty had met only days earlier through his brother. Led by McCafferty, the gang chose their first victim. At just over five feet tall, 50-year-old George Anson was an easy mark. 
The World War II veteran was a newspaper seller outside the Canterbury Hotel, and each evening after work, he'd drink at the hotel. Just after closing time on the evening of August 24, 1973, Anson was spotted by the gang as he staggered down the street towards his home. They'd been cruising the area in a stolen Volkswagen, looking for someone to beat up and rob. Archie was flying high on angel dust. Anson offered no resistance. He was far too drunk. The gang dragged Anson into a side street. As McCafferty grabbed the older man around the throat, Anson cried out, You young cunt! They were the last words he would ever say. McCafferty went berserk and kicked Anson repeatedly in the head and ribs. Then Archie heard the voice for the first time, Kill seven! Kill seven! Kill! 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 George Anson was kneeling in the gutter when McCafferty produced his knife and plunged it into his back and neck seven times. McCafferty gave the dying man one final kick in the face before running back to the car. His young disciples were in awe of the blood-soaked McCafferty, all except Rick Webster. Why the fuck did you do that? Webster asked. I stabbed him because he called me a young cunt. Now drive, you fucking idiot. McCafferty screamed at the terrified teenager. From that instant on, McCafferty did not trust Rick Webster. He would have to die. Archie threw the blood-soaked knife to Julie, who hid it under the car seat. So strong was Archie's spell over his gang that not another word was spoken about the killing of George Anson until they got back to the flat. On the way, the gang went to Hardy's drive-in fast food bar, where they ordered hamburgers, while McCafferty cleaned up in the men's room. Archie was in the horrors. His son was talking to him from the toilet mirror and beckoning him to go with him. Archie reached out to touch him, but he was gone. Kill seven. Kill seven. Kill seven. Back at the flat, Julie washed the blood from the murder weapon and returned it to McCafferty. Only then did he talk about the murder. I couldn't help myself, he told them. I couldn't stop. I can't understand why I did it. A voice, it was Craig's voice, told me to kill, kill, kill. Three nights later, on August 27th, Archie took his gang to the Leppington Cemetery to show them the son of his grave. Archie had been there many times with Carol Howes since the funeral. Howes said that they would sit at the grave and Archie would sob and say things like, The poor little bloke, he never stood a chance. It's not fair. It's not bloody fair. On one occasion, he'd promised his son that he would avenge his death. It was a cold, bleak night, and the rain came down in sheets. Small patches of fog gave the cemetery an eerier atmosphere than usual. Archie was off his face on angel dust again. Now the voice was coming from the grave. Kill seven. Kill seven. Kill seven. Archie and his gang stayed at the grave for a while and then went to a nearby hotel where they planned the night's events. All Archie wanted to do was to get back to the grave and the voice. He instructed his gang to take him back to the cemetery. Along the way, they dropped Julie Todd and Mick Meredith off to hitchhike. The plan was that as soon as a car stopped, they'd force the driver to the cemetery at gunpoint and the gang would rob him. Back at the cemetery, Archie was spinning out. He could see a bright light over his son's grave. There was a figure standing just out of the light. Archie approached the person and said, Dad? Is that you, Dad? Archie knew that it was his son. He had come back from the grave. Is that you, Craig? He asked. Yes, Dad, it's me. 
the voice replied. But, son, it can't be. You're dead. Do you want me to come back to you, Dad? Of course I do, but how can you do that, son? You've got to do something for me, Dad. Do this thing and I'll come back to you. Do you want me to come back to you? Yes, yes, more than anything in the world. I'll do anything to have you back. Anything, anything you ask. You must kill seven people. As soon as you do, you can have me back. But you must kill seven people. Kill seven. Kill seven. Kill seven. Moments later, a car pulled into the cemetery and stopped about 150 meters from the graveside. In the car were Julie Todd and Mick Meredith. They were holding 42-year-old Ronald Neal Cox at gunpoint, a miner who just finished his shift at the Oakville Colliery and was on his way home to Villawood in Sydney's western suburbs. Cox had felt sorry for the two kids hitchhiking in the rain and had stopped to give them a lift. It was a fatal mistake. Meredith had held a gun to his head and forced him to drive to the cemetery. McCafferty left the graveside and ran over to them. Ronald Cox was forced to lie down in the mud while McCafferty and Meredith held rifles at the back of his head. Cox begged for his life as the voices urged the murderous McCafferty on. Kill seven. Kill seven. Kill seven. The number bounced around in Archie's twisted brain. McCafferty turned to his gang and said, I'll have to knock him. He's seen all of our faces. Mick, kill him. What are you saying, Archie? Fuck you. Kill him said the demented Archie. Again, Ronald Cox begged for his life, telling him that he was the father of seven children. Although he had no way of knowing, it was a mistake that sealed his fate. At the mention of the word seven, McCafferty and Meredith then each shot Ronald Cox through the back of the head. As they were leaving to drive to Liverpool, Archie looked over to his son's grave. The light was still shining over it, and the shadowy figure was laughing loudly. Archie burst out laughing with his son. He later told detectives that his only regret about murdering Ronald Cox was that he wasn't closer to his son's grave, so some of Cox's blood could have dripped onto the plaque. After the killing of Cox, the gang members returned to the McCafferty unit where they drank beer and watched TV. But Archie could still hear the voices telling him to kill Seven, and he instructed two of his disciples to go and find him another victim. In the early hours of the following morning, 24-year-old driving instructor Evangelos Collias picked up Julie Todd and Dick Whittington as they hitchhiked along Enmore Road. Once in the car, Whittington produced a 22 rifle from under his coat. They forced Collias into the back seat and told him to lie on the floor while Julie drove the car back to the flat. McCafferty then took over. With Archie driving, the gang set off for Liverpool on the pretext of looking for a factory to rob but they knew better that it wasn't so. They knew that Archie had murder on his mind. Collias was told to lie low as they did not want him to see where they were going. Assured that he'd come to no harm, Collias lay on the back floor and went to sleep. Archie's plan was to kill Evangelos Collias, then drive his car to Blacktown and kill Janice McCafferty, her mother, and her mother's boyfriend. That would make six. The seventh victim would be one of his own gang, Rick Webster. Archie felt that Webster was going to betray him to the police. McCafferty told Whittington to kill Coleus. Whittington wasn't sure that he could, but as Coleus woke from his nap in the back of the car, Whittington held a sawed-off .22 rifle to his head and pulled the trigger. Evangelist Coleus died instantly. 
Shoot him again, urged McCafferty. Whittington put another bullet into the dead man's head. They dumped the body in a deserted street nearby. When he realized that Coleus's car didn't have enough petrol to get him to his wife's house, Archie abandoned the plan to murder Janice and her family. For that night, at least. He still intended to make them the next three victims. And if Rick Webster hadn't lived up to Archie's suspicions and gone to the police, there's no doubt that Archie would have killed them. The voice kept telling him to. When detectives arrested him, Archie told them, I was going to Blacktown to kill three people. I was going to go into the house and just start blasting away until they were all dead. They're very lucky people that the car didn't have enough petrol. Then Archie had intended to cut off his wife's head and send it in a box to the chief of the Criminal Investigation Bureau. When one of the gang members told Rick Webster that he was on Archie's hit list, Webster decided to tell what he knew to the police. McCafferty, Whittington, and Meredith followed Webster to the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper building, where he worked as an apprentice compositor. They sat in a stolen van out in front of the Herald building with loaded rifles, ready to kill Webster when he came out. Webster saw them waiting and had a reporter call police. Detectives arrived at the Herald, where Webster told them he was too terrified to leave the building. When they heard his story about the three murders, they called for reinforcements and the area was sealed off. Heavily armed detectives surrounded the vehicle, while Detective Sergeant K. Aldridge approached it and pointed his revolver at Michael Meredith. Other detectives rushed the vehicle and apprehended McCafferty and Whittington. They took possession of two loaded and cocked rifles. On the way to the police station, McCafferty told police, All right, I knocked the bloke at Canterbury. I knocked the bloke at Leppington. And I knocked the bloke at Maryland's. I knocked all three of them. He made no less a secret of the fact that he would kill again. At his sensational committal hearing leading up to his trial in February 1974, McCafferty pleaded not guilty to three counts of murder on the grounds of insanity. His five co-accused, Todd, Howe, Meredith, Whittington, and Webster, all pleaded not guilty to the same charges. The press had labeled the murders as thrill killings, and everyone wanted to know about the Charles Manson-like cult figure who had led his followers into an orgy of senseless killings. Archie didn't let the packed courthouse down. On the fourth morning of the committal hearing, Archie asked the judge if he could make a statement. Although it was an unusual request, the judge allowed it. McCafferty said, Excuse me, Your Worship, before the court starts, for the last four days I've sat here and listened to Mr. Bannon criticizing me on things that I've done. Now I've been wanting to say this for a long time, and I'm going to say it this morning. Mr. Bannon, if you're listening, I'd like to cut your head off. It was not so much what McCafferty said that put a chill through the courtroom. It was the cold, methodical way in which he said it. McCafferty had already murdered three innocent people. The voice from the grave of his dead infant son had told him to kill seven. Then this boy would come back to him. Archie McCafferty had four to go, and the decapitation of Mr. Bannon would put him one closer to his target. The Mr. Bannon in question was a barrister acting for one of McCafferty's five co-accused. The shaken Mr. Bannon proceeded with his case, safe in the knowledge that McCafferty was handcuffed and heavily guarded as he glared down from the dock. Archie McCafferty was also heavily drugged. Before the start of the committal hearings each morning and throughout his following trial at the Central Criminal Court, he was given a heavy dose of tranquilizers to subdue his uncontrollable outbreaks of violence. The dosage was enough to bring a racehorse to its knees, yet in Archie's drug-soaked system, it barely pacified him. 
but the drugs did have some of the desired effects. During the 12-day trial, Archie McCafferty had been alert and attentive. He listened closely to the evidence and made notes. He certainly didn't look like the deranged murderer who had been labeled Australia's Charles Manson. In fact, McCafferty often winked at the court reporters and joked with his co-accused. He fingered the bench in the dock as though it were a keyboard and played tunes for the gallery. When the proceedings became tiresome, he deep-etched his name on the bench with a pen. Archie was having a ball. But without his medicinal straitjacket, the 25-year-old Scotsman was a violent man who could kill without question. While awaiting trial in Long Bay's remand section, Archie had nearly killed another prisoner with his slops bucket. The only way to calm Archie down was with sedatives. At first, normal doses had no effect, so prison doctors kept increasing the dosage until it took effect. His daily dosage of 1,500 milligrams of the potent tranquilizer Lagactil was almost four times the normal dose of 400 milligrams. Prison psychiatrists agreed that McCafferty's incredible tolerance to massive doses of tranquilizers was, in itself, evidence that he was insane. At the trial, three psychiatrists gave their opinions of Archie's mental state. Dr. William Metcalf, a Macquarie Street specialist, was called to give evidence on behalf of the defense. He said that, in his opinion, McCafferty was insane at the time of the killings because he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Dr. Metcalf pointed out that Archie was mentally ill and his mind was not in tune with reality. He was a paranoid schizophrenic at the time of the killings. A completely different opinion was given by the prosecution's psychiatric advisor, Dr. Oscar Schmaltzbach, also a Macquarie Street specialist and consultant psychiatrist to the state government. Dr. Schmaltzbach said, In my view, McCafferty knew at the time that what he was doing was wrong. He may have had an isolated schizophrenic reaction at the time of the second killing, but this did not make him a paranoid schizophrenic. Such an illness does not exist one day and disappear another day and come back the third day. A third psychiatrist to examine McCafferty after the killings did not give evidence. He took the middle view that McCafferty was insane, but he knew what he was doing at the time of the killings. Although they could not agree on Archie's sanity, the three psychiatrists were united in the opinion that, no matter what, Archie McCafferty could never again be set free. They all agreed that he was an extreme danger to the community. Then it was Archie's turn, and the hushed courtroom was captivated as he told of the voice from the grave and how he'd been told that Seven must die if he wanted to see his son again. He maintained that he was completely insane at the time of the murders. The press lapped it up, and Archie didn't disappoint them. At last, he was getting the recognition that he so desperately craved, even if he had to kill three people to get it. And in true trooper fashion, Archie saved the best bit until last, his statement, which he read from the dock. Your Honor and gentlemen of the jury, firstly, I'd like to say that at the time of these crimes, I was completely insane. The reason why I did this is the revenge for my son's death. That is what made me do it. Before this, I had stated to a doctor that I felt like killing people, but up until my son's death, I'd not killed anyone. My son's death was the biggest thing that ever happened to me because I loved him so much, and he meant the world to me, and after his death, I just seemed to go to the pack. I feel no wrong for what I've done because at the time that I did it, I didn't think it was wrong. But after my son was killed, I tried to kill my wife and I was admitted to Parramatta Psychiatric Home because I knew I needed treatment, 
so I signed myself in and I was there for a number of weeks. I think if given a chance, I would kill again for the simple reason that I have to kill seven people and I've only killed three, which means I have four to go and this is how I feel in my mind. And I just can't say that I'm not going to kill anyone else because in my mind, I am. Whether you think I'm sane or insane is up to you, but I would say that I was definitely insane on the night of these murders. The day of my son's inquest at the coroner's court happened to be the day that I stabbed Mr. Anson. The reason why I killed this man was because I heard my son's voice tell me to do so. The same with the second and third person. Each time I went to the graveyard to visit my son's grave, a violent streak would come over me, and I wanted to be so violent, I wanted to kill people. I kept hearing voices, not only my son's voice, but other voices as well, which I didn't know whose they were. On the Thursday that I was apprehended, I had every intention of killing Rick Webster as I heard the voices tell me to do so, and anyone else that the voices told me to kill, I would kill until I reached the figure seven. I still say I felt no wrong in what I've done, and I'm still willing to kill anyone else that I'm told to kill. At the time of my son's death, I took it pretty hard, and since then, I've not been the same because I loved him so much, and I believe in my own mind that my wife murdered him on purpose, and that's why I killed these men, for the revenge of my son's death. And this is the honest truth, so I hope that the jury in your honor will believe what I've said. That's it. Mick Meredith and Dick Whittington were found guilty of the murders of Ronald Cox and Evangelos Colias, and each sentenced to 18 years in prison. Richard Webster was found guilty of the manslaughter of Cox and sentenced to four years in prison. Julie Todd was found guilty of murdering Cox and Colias and was sent to prison for 10 years. On May 20, 1974, she was found hanged in a bathroom at Silverwater Detention Center. She had just turned 17. Carol Howes was found not guilty on all counts. Eight months pregnant with McCafferty's child when the verdict was handed down, Howes made a passionate promise from the dog to McCafferty. I'll wait for you, Archie, she sobbed. No matter what, I'll always be waiting for you with our child. She immediately moved into the Blacktown house of Archie McCafferty's parents to have their grandchild. The jury chose to believe that Archie was not crazy and returned a verdict of guilty on all counts. Nobody shed a tear for the remorseless killer as the judge handed down the three life sentences. As he was led back to prison, McCafferty swore he would kill again. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that, given a chance, he would. There was no such lenient sentence for Archibald Beatty McCafferty. He was sentenced to three terms of life imprisonment. Even as he was being led from the courtroom, he shouted that he would kill four more to avenge the death of his son. Archie proved to be a handful for the authorities, and he was shuffled around to the toughest jails in the state. Prison officials and psychiatrists regarded him as extremely dangerous. His one consistent and predominant thought was the killing of four more people. A television crew allowed into the notorious Katingal section of Long Bay Jail interviewed Archie, who told a stunned audience that there was nothing that anyone could do to stop him from murdering another four people should he be let out placed on massive doses of tranquilizers to keep him under control. By 1978, Archie had done time in almost every maximum security prison in the state and was considered to be a jail heavy and an associate of the hardest criminals in the penal system. In April 1980, warders foiled an escape attempt by Archie at Grafton Jail. 
He had loosened bricks in his cell before prison officials were tipped off and his escape route was discovered. At the time, prison officers said McCafferty was probably the worst criminal in the state's jails. Police believe that Archie McCafferty was a member of the secret murder squad that was judge, jury, and executioner behind the walls of Parramatta Jail in 1981. They believe that the group was responsible for four murders within the prison. In September 1981, Archie was charged with the murder of Edward James Lloyd, who was stabbed to death in his cell. Archie's co-accused, Kevin Michael Gallagher, was eventually found guilty of the murder. It was proved that McCafferty was present while the murder took place, and though he strenuously denied the charges, McCafferty was found guilty of manslaughter and given a further 14 years. Archie protested vehemently against the sentence, claiming that he'd been framed. To prove it, he named those who were responsible to the authorities. Archie McCafferty automatically became an outcast within the system that had been his home for the best part of his life. He was now the biggest headache within the New South Wales penal system. For his own prediction, he was transferred from one jail to the next in search of a permanent home. In November 1981, Archie was caught red-handed in his cell with 10 foil-wrapped packages containing heroin. The judge sentenced him to another three years imprisonment. During 1983 and 1984, Archie was moved repeatedly between Maitland, Long Bay, and Parkley prisons under the unofficial but reprehensible practice called Shanghaiing whereby senior prison staff were able to pass the responsibility for dealing with difficult prisoners onto others. It was noted in official records that Archie suffered fits of mental disturbance during this period, and he was said to be off his rocker. After giving further information to authorities about serious criminal conduct by various prison officers within the prison system, Archie was eventually moved to the Long Bay Witness Protection Unit in 1987. By now, a price had been placed on his head, and he was classified as a supergrass. It was in the witness protection unit that Archie was revisited by delusions concerning his dead son. Prison psychiatrists put it down to the fact that he'd been sniffing solvents and petroleum and was extremely depressed by the lack of prospects for his future release. As no parole period had been given, it was clear to Archie that he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. But he kept applying for parole. In October 1991, Archie McCafferty's application for parole was heard before Mr. Justice Wood. The judge granted him a 20-year parole period dating from August 30, 1973. Archie became eligible for release on parole on August 29, 1993. Over the years, Archie's anger subsided until he was considered safe enough to be placed at the Barima Minimum Security Prison south of Sydney. But each year, when he applied to be released on parole, he was rejected. And so, Archie McCafferty serial killer and arguably the most violent prisoner the Australian penal system had ever seen, became a model prisoner and, for the last four years of his incarceration, was allowed to visit and stay with the family of his brother and his wife and children from Friday nights to Sunday nights without supervision. This position of trust developed to the stage where Archie was allowed to leave the prison each day for six days a week on work release until the parole board agreed that he was indeed a changed man who was no longer a danger to society and decided that he'd be released on parole. The only condition of the parole was that Archie would be deported. When Archie heard that he was to be deported to a Scotland that he hadn't seen in almost four decades, and even worse, to a hostile community that wanted nothing to do with a vicious serial killer, he did everything within his limited powers to stave off the inevitable. But his pleas fell on deaf ears, and amid protests from the Scottish authorities, 
he was put on a plane on May 1, 1997 and sent back to his birthplace. Off the plane, back in Scotland, Archie was reunited with Mandy Queen, a woman he had married and then divorced while in jail in New South Wales. Interviewed by Australia's current affairs program shortly after his arrival back in Scotland, Archie told presenter Paul Berry, I've come out of the system a good person, a changed person. I believe that people change. He then toasted his freedom with a glass of champagne with Mandy Queen and said, This is my first drink since 1973. But now there's no need for alcohol in my life. It's a thing of the past. I don't need it. In October 1998, Archie McCafferty was put on two years probation after threatening to kill police officers. McCafferty threatened the police after a car chase near Edinburgh followed a drinking session and argument with his de facto wife, Mandy, who complained he had left home with their four-month-old son, Connell. In the Edinburgh Sheriff Court, McCafferty also pleaded guilty to careless driving, driving with no license or insurance, failing to provide a breath specimen, and breach of the peace. The court did not take into consideration Archie's previous convictions because they were considered foreign offenses which did not occur in Britain. Archie and Mandy Queen were remarried in a secret ceremony in Scotland in October 1998. They settled in England in a small home in Southsea and had a second child, a daughter named Chloe. But Archie's anger re-emerged in 2002 when he attacked a police officer with a knife when he knocked on the door about a domestic dispute. He was charged with assault and was supposed to be present in court in November of that year, but he never showed up. Instead, he left Britain and secretly left for New Zealand in an attempt to move back to Australia. When he didn't show up in court, a warrant on his name reached New Zealand, and he was sent back to the UK, where he hid in Northern Ireland and finally moved back to Scotland with Mandy and the kids. When the police found him, he was fined £50, and he did some community time, but absolutely no prison time for Archie. In 2004, after a fight with Archie, Mandy was wounded by a knife and managed to flee with her daughter. When the police arrived, Archie held the knife to his son's throat, threatening to kill him. After one and a half hours, he let him go, and 30 minutes later, he surrendered. He pled not guilty to the assault, attempted murder, and kidnap charges. And because his murders were outside Great Britain, they would not form a path of his sentencing considerations. They gave him six months of jail time. Mandy moved back to Australia with her two kids, trying to reunite with her daughters. But unsurprisingly, her daughters didn't want anything to do with her anymore. In 2008, Archie fell in love with a woman named Shelley Love. He changed his name to James Locke to escape media attention, but his identity was revealed when he drove a stolen Volvo and was pulled over by the police. The sentence was 200 hours of community service. In 2012, he was seen working at his partner's dress shop in Edinburgh, and he lashed out at reporters trying to get a picture or ask questions. He still lives in Scotland, and he's trying to publish his book, Shall Seven Die?, a book Archie wrote in prison. There are no records that the book was ever released. Archie didn't give police any headaches since his last incident. But one must wonder, shall the remaining four die? <laughs>